Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. It's been some time now that the writers of both Kings and Chronicles have been assuming, along with us, that you've caught on to the cycles of faith or faithlessness and their covenantal consequences being repeated in the kingdoms of the North and the South. At this point, the writer of Kings is getting hand cramps from it all and resorts to a two-sentence summary of the 16-year reign of Jehoahaz's son, Jehoash. Jehoash, Yahweh has given, another king who doesn't notice his name's message. In addition, like once earlier, both Israel and Judah end up with a king of the same name in close time proximity. Jehoash now, Ahaziah before. If you've been tracking in Tom with us, you've seen it enough to stop reading six words in. He also did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he caused Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, and on and on. That's Second Kings 13.11. If it's been a while... Jeroboam's the one that got the whole northern kingdom off to a terrible start by putting those two bowls up at the borders when Israel cut ties with Judah and our temple down there, remember? And so the cycle goes on and on in Israel. Though there are occasional baby steps in the right direction, they are very few and very limited. In spite of the summary judgment passed on him by King's writer, Jehoash actually consults with the dying prophet Elisha about the Syrian problem, and even wins a few cities back, as Elisha predicts with his final words. But like each king before him, northern Joash isn't seeking me. He just wants military victory. And though I grant him that, he doesn't say another word in my general direction thereafter. He is simply the next generation in the uninterrupted sequence of kings that follow in Jeroboam's charter steps of rebellion, self-sufficiency, and reliance on surrounding culture and its gods for, well, everything. We are at the twelfth king mark in Israel here, and what could have been a numeric symbol of family and completeness and faithfulness is relegated to an also-ran moment. Judah's kings are in a somewhat better cycle, but they're not exactly on the way themselves. After southern Joash's servants finish him off after his battle injuries don't quite do it, his son Amaziah reigns over Judah. Both Kings and Chronicles note, in 2 Kings 14 and 2 Chronicles 25, they note that his mom's a local gal, again removing the influence of maternal foreign gods from the equation, which unfortunately does not make Amaziah immune to smorgasbord influence, as we shall see. 
Amaziah does a good deal of right in my eyes, but his heart also isn't mine. He keeps the convenience store high places of worship in full operation. The people are still aiming most of that worship at me for now, but not coming together at my temple as I've commanded, missing out on the multiple layers of blessing, of unity, and community we built into our design. Hint, hint. Note that you need faith community just as much as they did. Amaziah does have a streak of mercy in him, though that may be hard for you to recognize from where you sit in your habitat. Once the crown is firmly in his hands, Amaziah has his father's killers executed. Oh, that's clearly not the mercy part. It's plain justice in his habitat's eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth vein. What sets the new king apart is the fact that he doesn't execute the killer's offspring or families. Though shocking to your sensibilities and ours, as our law indicates, wiping out all other potential enemies is what his surrounding habitat would dictate. However, Amaziah abides by my command in Deuteronomy regarding such matters, in stark contrast to his peers. That's Deuteronomy 24.16. Honestly, we've got more than mixed feelings about Amaziah. Just look at the jumble of good and bad in his war with Edom, his southeastern neighbor. He drafts for the battle all his eligible males from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which you'll remember are the only tribes in the southern kingdom. He decides he hasn't got enough, so he hires mercenaries from the closest tribe on the northern side of the border, Ephraim. Does he ask me or seek my guidance? No, but I give it to him anyway. Another single-use prophet lights up with my spirit and tells Amaziah to lose the mercenaries. He tells the king that Yahweh's too angry with Israel now to bless anything any of them are involved in. Send Ephraim back home across the border. Yahweh is all the help you need. It's the same old trust in me and not your own devices message that we've been trying to get through to these guys and you this whole time. And to Amaziah's great credit, he listens to the prophet and lets the Israelite mercenaries go home, not even asking for his money back. They may have their upfront pay intact, but won't be able to cart home any spoils or booty so they're pretty angry about being let go on their first day like this. And so, because of this act of trusting faith, when Amaziah and his forces meet with the Edomites at Judah's southeastern border, there in the Valley of Salt, at the southern tip of the salty Dead Sea, Judah has complete and decisive victory over Edom. Anthropomorphized thumbs up for Amaziah whose name, after all, means Yahweh is mighty. Amen. However, as we've noted, all too often temptation to sin comes fast on the heels of a great victory. To contrast what happens here, recall with us an episode with David back in the good old days where the Philistines attack from the southwest. David and our troops catch them at it so quickly they don't have time to take anything with them leaving everything, including their travel-sized idols, behind. Idols which David and his men promptly carry away and dispose of. 
Well, Amaziah is faced with a similar situation here, as the Edomite camp has a good assortment of idols left in it. However, instead of walking in David's steps, Amaziah collects the statues and carts them back to Jerusalem, not to burn them or otherwise put them out of commission, but to make sacrifices to them. You'd think I was kidding, but I am not. Second Chronicles 25.5 has all the detail, whereas the writer of Kings summarizes it all in a single sentence in 2 Kings 1.14.7. I fire up another single-use prophet with whom to confront the king, asking him, Why are you worshiping gods that couldn't protect their followers from your own attack? You won, right? I am your god. You won with my help. They lost with their idols' help. Are you really this stupid? Is this perhaps a time in your life you need to hear the same thing? Well, you just did. The prophet doesn't actually get the last question out because the king interrupts my prophet with, Have I made you a royal counselor? I don't think so. Keep talking, mister, and I'll have you put to death. And in saying so... Amaziah chooses the form of his eventual end. And once again, since Amaziah has chosen to worship Edom's idols, they are the gods that will have to help and save him when he rather foolishly does battle with Israel. That's right. His victory over Edom has made Amaziah cocky, and he assumes he'll have the same victory over the north as he had with Edom not realizing the importance of the Yahweh factor in his salty valley win. It is not surprising, then, that what should have been a mere skirmish with the north and its unremarkable king at the time, Joash, just to keep you on your toes, the name Joash is interchangeable with and actually a shortening of Jehoash, actually lessening overt reference to me, sadly. A bit like Mike from Michael, without the theological impact. What should have been an easy victory ends in devastating loss for Judah. By the time Joash is finished with Amaziah, the wall around Jerusalem is considerably breached, and Joash's men have carted off to the north all the gold and silver they can find, even from the temple. Amaziah is not killed in the battle, Thinking he escapes death in doing so, the king flees to the city of Lachish in Judah's western foothills. There he is later found and killed by assassins in the fate with which he threatened my prophet. My prophet, who was trying to get the king back onto the path to life. Second Chronicles 25.17, 2 Kings 14.8 This battle between Israel and Judah serves as a pivot point as it's also the final recorded event in the life of Joash in Israel. He sleeps with his ancestors some time afterward, obviously not as a result of the battle, which was a rout in his favor. And just to make sure everyone knows this is not going to represent a shift in policy in the north, the son of Joash, who was made king at his father's death, is named Jeroboam, the name of the first king of Israel after the kingdom split the one who charted the course squarely off the way on which the north has been ever since. Not a great guy to be named after in our book. 
It is not long after this change in the north that Amaziah meets his fate in Lachish, and his teenage son is placed on the throne of Judah. In habitual practice that continues to make it hard to delineate between generations, Amaziah's son's name is frustratingly similar to that of his father. Amaziah's son is Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, obviously named in his dad's earlier faithful years, 2 Kings 14.21. He reigns as Uzziah. Yahweh is my strength, close to his formal name. By now you've noted that the Yah ending has shifted to simply Ah in all these names, but the reference to Moi is still firm. If only all their lives referenced me as much as their names do. Azariah slash Uzziah included. So Azariah reigns as Uzziah in Chronicles, and we'll refer to him as Uzziah to avoid confusion. Second Chronicles 26, 1. Now, if you restrict yourself to the account of Azariah Uzziah's reign in Kings, where his life is summed up in seven verses, 2 Kings 15, 1, you'd think he doesn't amount to much, that he gives it a bit of a go at first, but then I strike him with leprosy for some unknown reason, and that's all there is to his story. Again, Kings is skipping lots of southern detail, so Chronicles fills a good amount in, and Uzziah gets an entire chapter that puts flesh on the few abrupt bones of Kings, 2 Chronicles 26. Both accounts indicate his young age, 16 at the start of his reign, and that his mother, Jechaliah, is a local gal who also grew up in Jerusalem, another quiet indictment of previous kings, Ahab most notoriously, but also Solomon, of their marriages to foreign princesses and of the corrupting influence of outsiders. We are not going to stop reminding you of these things, since you still need to choose wisely those who will have influence over you, be they spouses or roommates or BFFs. Chronicles augment the formula that Uzziah did write in the eyes of Yahweh with the important tidbit that Uzziah seeks us in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. If it's not been too long since you picked this up, that should remind you of the good high priest Jehoiada and his mentoring of young Joash. The really important part of that sentence is Uzziah's seeking us a la David, all too rare, then and now. Not surprisingly, the chronicler, who is obviously quite fond of underlining these correlations, points out that as long as he sought Yahweh, God gave Uzziah success. Second Chronicles 26.5 that success comes in several forms. Military victory against the Philistines and other neighbors. The rebuilding of cities that had formerly fallen, including the fortification of Jerusalem, whose towers get equipped with the latest catapult technology. Hefty agrarian abundance manifest in large herds. And great general bounty, fame, prosperity, and strength. And the chronicler won't let you miss that this is all for he was greatly helped by us. And so, naturally, the chronicler's next word is but. Of course it is. Here it comes, the pride cycle. Get out your highlighter. 
But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Uzziah lets all the bounty get to his head, forgetting our partnership with him in it all, thinking he's the brilliant strategist, economist, commander, king, who can do anything he sets his mind to. And apparently, he's also always wanted to get a closer look at the inside of the holy place in my temple. You know, where only priests are allowed to go? Sure, he's curious. Who isn't? That's a hallmark of living with the great mystery of who we are. But now, since nothing else has been denied him, Uzziah assumes this won't elude him either. He knows the holy place is not a tourist attraction, though, and that even priests only enter there to offer sacrifice of some kind. So he grabs some incense on his way in, as if this will enable him to bluff his way past the codified restrictions set to keep him out. This should have a familiar sound to it, though it's been a dozen generations since Saul got himself in trouble and lost his crown in part for making sacrifice to me that belonged solely in the hands of a priest. The swagger and pride that drove Saul has grown in Uzziah to the same megalomaniacal point, the point of uselessness. So consumed with themselves, they step off the way and no longer move the Abra plan forward, producing setback instead. And so, friend, keep a keen eye out for self-trust and pride for resting on past success and expecting it to come again without asking me for help. You and I are in this together. I will not leave you. Keep an eye out for signs of my presence and love, and you and I will walk together for all eternity on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, Be good to yourself.